beginning. All right, welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. And here we are on a beautiful, snowy, snowy uh, winter day in the Niagara region in Canada, Ontario. And we have with us a special guest. Uh, all of our guests are special, and this one is included as well. So her name is Beth Allen, a.k.a. Biff Naked. She is an international recording artist, poet, writer, troublemaker, nice girl, dishwasher, martial artist, ballerina, straight edger, tree hugger, bare knuckle fighter, Canadian citizen, and middle daughter. She was born in India and raised in the United States and Canada, spending much of her formative years in Winnipeg. After fronting the underground bands Gorilla Gorilla and Chrome Dog, Biff became a prominent alternative artist, performer, and songwriter. Throughout her remarkable career, Biff embarked on seemingly endless international tours, seven feature films and multiple television roles only to be struck down with breast cancer at the age of 37 and she would discover her passion for advocacy as a triumphant survivor and someone who helps others first she wrote her biography in 2016 called i bificus find her at biffnaked.com instagram and twitter at biffnaked beth welcome to the program should i say biff <laughs> what an introduction oh my gosh <laughs> Well, you know, Beth and Biff sound the same. They're both one syllable names. And Biff is a nickname that I've had since the eighth grade. So I answer to everything. Oh, wonderful. Well, I like both. So you know what? I'm just going to throw it up there 50-50 and just say <laughs> Beth. Uh, so walk us through how, when music became serious for you, when you really decided to pursue it. Well, honestly, it was an accident. For me, I was uh, a performing arts kid, along with my younger sister and my older sister. Uh, we were forced into piano lessons when we were little kids. Uh, we started ballet probably uh, before we started kindergarten. And uh, I really thought I would be a ballerina um, until high school when I started doing school plays and got into my theater program. I was cast in my school musical by accident in my senior year, and that was the first time I ever discovered I was an alto or knew that I had a uh, very loud voice. And uh, in university, I, I fell into a band because I was teaching the drummer. Then I went on tour, and uh, I've never returned to my academic studies. <laughs> I've been on tour for <laughs> over 30 years. Wow. So just getting getting involved in music, learning you had uh, some some skills, some talent there uh, just kind of propelled you forward. And and then you just started touring and then said, you know what, this is for me. This I, I really jive with this music thing. Absolutely. And just uh, from being a uh, trying to write poetry my whole life, uh, it became a perfect vehicle uh, for lyric writing, really, I, I finally found a place to channel all that cathartic writing. And uh, that coupled with uh, being a performer, it was the perfect job for me. That's so interesting. Yeah, like I had to suffer through academia. It's nice that you got out early. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, of course, I didn't finish my studies, so I always fantasized that I'll go back to school. But luckily for me, I was uh, kind of handed a um, honorary doctorate. <laughs> so I hope <laughs> that it helps me apply as a second year student. <laughs> I think it will. So do, I'm actually curious, actually, what's on that honorary degree? Like what name is on that? Is it Biff Naked? Uh, so it? yes, ultimately it is uh, Biff Naked. But, you know, that's in parentheses. So my legal name is Beth Allen. And, of course, I uh, get the esteemed privilege of uh, saying Dr. Beth Allen. But I always <laughs> say it's a, it's, a pretend, it's a pretend doctor in a way. It's also arts and letters. So it's not like I was, uh, you know, a proctology student, I always <laughs> say. But people don't know. Once you say, uh, you know, Dr. Allen, they won't know. And they'll they'll just assume that you are. So <laughs> it's always interesting That's, to correct people. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Absolutely. 
That's so that's so interesting. I want to actually talk about names for a second because you did mention, you know, Biff, you got it as nickname. So how was it the nickname? So why why Biff? Well, there was a uh, a fellow in my I think the freshman year of high school who had a visiting cousin. I can't make this up. He had a visiting cousin from the UK who pronounced my name Beth with an F as in Frank. So he would call me Beth, Beth. <laughs> and uh, the kids thought it was really funny and just started calling me Biff. Around the same time, I think uh, uh, they were making fun of uh, Back to the Future movie and uh, and the bully's name was Biff, which is uh, very sarcastic and quite ironic because I'm kind of far from a bully, despite the tattoos. <laughs> That's cool. That's actually a really cool story. And then how did Naked come about? Were you just, I don't know, naked the whole time? Or (laughs) (laughs) where did that come from? No. (laughs) Well, you know, when I was uh, starting out in punk rock band, it seemed like all uh, all the male singers had these really cool stage names like Chai Pig or uh, Mark Arm was another guy. They all had these names. And uh, even though everyone knew my name was Biff, it was a little bit androgynous in a way. But then when we said Biff Naked, it was because on the poster for our very first show, uh, the, the band said, come see Biff Naked singing for Gorilla Gorilla. Uh, because they previously had a, a male singer. So they, they didn't think they could get anyone to come and see a, a singer that was a female. So they kind of in, insinuated that I would be uh, unclothed or disrobing. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do what you got to do to get the, the masses out, right? <laughs> exactly. It's all about the hustle, as they say. <laughs> and that's funny. So how long did it take you to actually like feel it out since basically they gave the name was it like an automatic thing like yes like this is who i am or was it more of a process of you getting used to that name you know it was something that i just simply could never shake it was uh it's a weird thing when you when you have uh the new barbecue on the block all the neighbors are going to talk about you and uh that's the same thing in the music business and especially back then it was you know the early 90s and in Winnipeg, uh, there just weren't a lot of other bands that were our competition. There were not a lot of other female singers. Uh, so it just really snowballed. And uh, we moved to Vancouver. And uh, I got into another band that was a thrash band. And after two years of that, I was uh, offered a recording contract as a solo artist. Wow, that's interesting. Such an interesting journey. And I always love like names, just like how they come about and then when we sort of take them on because i know for myself like as a teenager i always went by josh just because josh was cool right the kids were calling me josh right. and then when i grew up and matured and i think it was about six years ago i changed i basically changed it i'm like i want to be called joshua you know i want to sort of embrace this new name because it represents something like more in strength and courage than i had mm-hmm. prior and then like i see like i i read like ram das and understand that you know like gurus give like people these new names right these spiritual names and like yeah. so for ram das was like richard alpert was in change to ram das and also jeffrey cagle was in change to krishna das which is a kirtan singer you probably know and so i was actually yeah. really curious is that you know when you adopted so that new name and people started calling you Biff naked was it like liberating like did it were you able to be something new or feel something new because of that well, because I've had, I've basically been called Biff since, I mean, since my training brawl in, in reality. I mean, since I was an adolescent. And the first show that I did with Gorilla Gorilla and, and bands before that, I mean, I was 18, 18 years old. So in a way, I don't know any different. There was never anything that was kind of an evolution or a liberation for me because it just always, always was. Um, I think that as I was growing up and maturing, you know, the name was already called as part of my identity, even though I wasn't self-aware enough to know that that's how I self-identified. And and to this day, I don't really think I self-identify as Biff Naked ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that I always feel 
uh, exactly the same. Like I'm my, you know, my, my parents' kid. You know, I don't feel anything different. And when you read my, uh, uh, my introduction, that's a perfect example uh, of how I feel. I am a dishwasher in my household. I do all the dishes. And I am a middle daughter before I am anything else. That's interesting. Yeah. And then you got married and changed your last name. Did, did that mean anything? Like, did that bring about anything like the Allen? Oh, well, you know, I always say I love weddings, especially <laughs> my own. And uh, it is my third last name as a married individual, much to the chagrin of some of my girlfriends who insist that it's archaic for me to always take my husband's name, uh, but I love it. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. I love it. And uh, so Alan is um, uh, my husband's last name. His name is Steven. We call him Snake. And he's my guitar player and, uh, and partner and co-conspirator. Um, my first husband was the drummer in Gorilla Gorilla, and his last name was Hopkins, the proper British name, you know. And uh, I liked it a lot more than I liked my father's name, which was Torbert. And it was always hard for people to say Torbert, you know, or they asked about it, or they asked me to repeat it, how to spell it. And so I was ecstatic as an 18-year-old, you know, jaunty miss getting married to this, you know, proper British kid um, with a big mohawk, uh, much to my parents' um consternation i suppose uh but i was hopkins for a long time and i just uh kept his last name uh because it was too annoying really to change all my identification we were we were divorced almost within 16 months of our wedding uh naturally as young people are wont to do uh and i didn't marry again until i was 36 years old and um and of course i took his last name and after that wedding, I was diagnosed with breast cancer about uh, five weeks later. And so that became a very, very different dynamic. That was, uh, I called it university. <laughs> it was such a learning curve. I learned so much. And when I, when I became divorced from him, uh, then I went back to my father's name. And then lo and behold, I met my, my current husband and took his name. <laughs> I am a joy. I am a joy at the passport office. Don't kid yourself. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, so it's cool. And it's cool that you, you know, like some people are against it. But I think there is beauty in changing names in the sense of, you know, you can identify with a new phase of your life. And it seems like this one's uh, this one's the charm. Third, the charm right here, right? That's right. That's yeah. what I think. <laughs> I have a good feeling about this one. <laughs> Me too. Absolutely. <laughs> and so actually, uh, going going with like just the name theme or whatever, you mentioned in one of your interviews that when you got diagnosed with breast cancer, that it was Biff that got diagnosed, not Beth. Could you sort of talk about that a little bit? Well, I think that uh, it, perhaps it might be uh, common for a lot of people, either, you know, they're, for example, they're a professor or they are uh, one of the patients I volunteered with. Uh, when she was diagnosed, she was an emergency room physician who was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she was expected to be, you know, really well-informed and, and really, you know, really brave about it. And she absolutely unraveled and fell apart, and no one could, no one gave her, allowed her to be that, allowed her to be vulnerable. No one really gave her that permission and for myself, it was very similar. You know, I couldn't see a regular patient. I always say that I was, uh, you know, part of my job is being a bit of a dog and pony show. And that's just show business. I can't go to the Sobeys grocery store without, you know, doing a photo with somebody in the product section. Um, you know, so I always say, don't, don't leave the house without makeup or they'll do a picture of you and say that you're in rehab like the Inquirer used to say about Elizabeth Taylor. Um, but uh, when I was in um, the chemo wards, I couldn't just be unwell. I couldn't sit there and not feel well. I had to 
kind of uh, entertain everybody from the nurses to the other patients. And what I discovered was that was actually very uplifting for me uh, to be able to kind of perform my way through it. And that really, really did uh, benefit me. And it, it's what led me to volunteering and eventually palliative care volunteering. That's fascinating. Like you really, uh, it seems like you really leaned in towards the fame instead of, uh, I guess, making, you know, excuse about it or, or, you know, getting upset or frustrated about it, which, which can happen very easily. I mean, just thinking about that, you know, going through something as challenging as, as what you did, um, like any other person, you know, it would be very daunting and, and to have all these emotions attached with it. But, you know, like you said, you can't even, you know, you go to the store, people want to take pictures with you and you have to be made up uh, almost. You're going to have to be that figure. But, and then you embraced it rather than kind of shied away. And I think that speaks a lot to your personality and how you seem to generally gravitate towards the positive uh, more. That's really amazing. Well, you know, I think that um, more than anything, I, I have this sense of humor that's very self-deprecating. And, uh, you know, I had to, I always say find the funny in it. And with, uh, with chemotherapy, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem like there's possibly anything possibly that could be funny about it. But there's a lot of funny in it. And uh, the very first time I was in chemotherapy, you know, basically I, I decided with some of my girlfriends, because it's our sense of humor, uh, I decided that I was going to, you know, dress like a slut <laughs> because we wanted to go to chemo with like uh, you know, stilettos and a bikini top and, you know, you know, take magazines and popcorn and chewing gum and like all our stuff. And, you know, because you have to uh, find really a way to get through it. And, uh, and of course, everything changed when I arrived. It's the, you know, my... Um, my uh, my shoes uh, didn't fit because of the edema that suddenly came, and uh, you know it makes you unwell. And you're taking, you know, nausea medication and all this stuff. So so that changed immediately when I got there. But what I wasn't anticipating uh, was being in a room with four other people who were also having their infusions that same time. One of whom was a brain tumor patient who had a 10-month-old baby on her lap. And that woke me up. I mean, it made me realize that no matter how terrible I felt, no matter how, um, you know, how, how pitiful I was or pathetic, there was always someone who was in much more precarious, um, terrible situation than me. And um, also the, the gentleman beside me was on his third time through chemotherapy and for colon cancer. And uh, I wound up in a conversation with him where he said he was in his third time. And I asked him right away, did he have an ostomy bed? And like the whole room kind of stopped talking and he started laughing. I said, no one's ever asked me that before. And I said, well, like, pull it out. Like, let's see it. Like, I've never seen an Like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard of. Like, like, show me your bag. And he was laughing his head off, and we were hysterically laughing till we cried. Well, he told us, all of us, stories about trying to go on a date with a woman and trying to make out with this woman with his ostomy bag. He's trying to hide it. <laughs> and uh, you know we were laughing. It was insane the story he told. And then the bag broke. The punchline was the bag broke. And then you know we were just <laughs> crying with laughter, including him. Meanwhile, we're all having our infusions. And then you know he he mentioned he she never called him again. And then we laugh again for you know another <laughs> seven straight minutes. So that was my introduction into getting chemotherapy and it was such a warm, funny, joyful experience to be in that room with other people who are in the same situation and have that sense of community and mutuality. And that that just informed the rest of my 
work moving forward. And mm-hmm. I just thought, this is amazing. And this is, this is the angle that needs to be spoken about and told. And, uh, and I was hooked. I couldn't leave the, the hospital. I was a loiterer. I was practically a, a stalker. You know, they, they almost put me on staff or charged me for impersonating a nurse. I loved it so much. I loved being there. I loved all the patients. And uh, lo and behold, of course, I was the first to sign up to volunteer. That, that, that's so interesting because there's a lot of similarities uh, to kind of the world we live in and the work we do with uh, death and loss because sure. it's almost like there's there's it removes a lot of, when you get into the details of it it removes a lot of the black and white of it you know there, there's a lot of gray in these areas and it's not always you know negative or positive like kind of as a as when you look at it from above in society sometimes it looks like that you know cancer bad you know this is good you know rainbow's good you know <laughs> getting shot in the arms bad but right. in the truth of it is and and I recently experienced the death of my grandmother, but until you're in the world, until you're in it and experience it, it, it's hard to kind of relate to others who are doing that. And it seemed like, you know, you got there, you got in there, you, you experienced this challenge of your own yourself, but then you saw a different world when you got in there. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I'm sorry about your grandmother. But um, like you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, healing and uh, friendship that is formed and forged through mutuality and through shared experience. And I think that for uh, human beings across the planet, you know, whatever whatever the situation is, that that shared experience and particularly lived experience that is shared uh, really does connect people. And those bonds are you know, extremely valuable and, uh, and uplifting for people. Yeah. There's something beautiful of when you're suffering and someone can give you that respite by allowing you to laugh because there's just so much pain going on and so much frustration and anxiety and worry that you almost just need that person. And it's amazing. You're able to be that for so many people. And to also start the conversation, because I can only imagine, I know in like just everyday the public, no one like in lines, the grocery stores, no one talks to anyone. And so for you to sort of, I think, just speak or ask some questions, other people feel it's safe to. And I think, you know, that's probably what makes you a great volunteer is that, you know, you're, you're willing to be the first one to say something. Well, you know, I, I thank you for saying that, but I assure you, my husband hates it. <laughs> he uh, he is a very shy, and I am at what is called an elevator talker. So I'm the person that never shuts up. I cannot not say something. I say something to everybody in the grocery store lineup. I say something to everybody who walks into the elevator, and uh, I blame my parents 100. percent I just I'm a chat I'm a chatty classy. It's just how I am built. And uh, on one hand, it makes me, um, you know, perfect for a, a life of being a performer. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I do feel that it's uh, definitely something that's beneficial as I move forward with uh, just just some of my life's work, some of my calling, which has little to do with singing at all. It has more to do with people and uh, and end of life, senior citizens, uh, vulnerable populations. Uh, you know, I just think that that's, that's where I can uh, be of the most benefit uh, to people. Yeah, I can definitely see that um, because you just have the personality, you have an uplifting spirit, and that's what people need to get through some of the challenges that they're facing. And so I know you shared a story about a fan reaching out or the mother of a fan reaching out of one of your first times that maybe you sat with, you know, someone who was dying. Can you like tell that story and what that meant to you? Well, you know, with, uh, with the internet being how it is all of us, uh, whether you're a, uh, you know, whether you are a, a single parent that works from home or whether you are a, a grocery store clerk or whether you are a singer, you're accessible on the internet. And uh, someone had sent me a letter that I received personally 
and their their daughter was and their adult daughter uh, was in hospice care. Uh, she had been uh, dealing with breast cancer for some time and had finally taken a turn for the worse, and so was uh, eventually in hospice care. And her mother reached out to me and said, you know, my daughter uh, was a big fan of yours, and it would mean a lot to her and to our family if you could come and see her. And, uh, you know, I think that um, a lot of people find a story like that kind of appalling. They just think, oh, my goodness, how can anyone, you know, have the audacity to ask that of someone? And, and I felt very very touched, obviously, very moved by it. But I, I felt a certain, a real privilege in that. Um, and I felt a responsibility uh, to not say no. Uh, even if I was petrified to go or, or anything like that, which of course I wasn't because you know, I was already very, very familiar uh, with the hospital and just through you know, being there for my own treatments uh, and infusions. Uh, and of course, with with uh, cancer patients in particular, I had met so many over the over the course of uh, the two years I was in in infusion, and um, so it wasn't that daunting for me. Although I did feel self-conscious, and uh, but, you know, it's uh, it's still if you don't have experience uh, with people who are in palliative care or who are in hospice, it, it's hard for most people to be able to. I guess, feel comfortable. You don't know what to say. You don't know how to hold your hands in your lap. You don't know what they might want you to do. Uh, there's a lot of fear uh, surrounding death, surrounding dying. We don't want to be, we don't want to talk about death or dying or, or be around dying people. I mean, that's just a general kind of way of thinking in our society. So when I did arrive uh, to go and visit uh, that family, you know, it was it was it was something that was very very special. Uh, the patient's name was Claire, and uh, she was so very vibrant and very conscious and very talkative. And uh, her friends all came to see her on a very regular basis, and they would bring their takeout dinner and come have dinner with her. And it was uh, very casual and, uh, and and quite lovely. Well, and the nurses in the ward were obviously very accommodating and, and very tolerant of any shenanigans that that family and patient got up to regarding whether it was loud music or, you know, very smelly Thai food or whatever it was. They, they kind of um, just had a bit of a ball. And I thought that that was very, very wonderful because, you know, you might as well try and have, have some, some fun and, and special times while you can. And it or her went... Um, went sideways rather quickly and uh, some of her physiological uh, complications uh, really did take over and it, it be everyone became uh, very sad but I was glad that was my introduction and uh, and Claire was uh, a really wonderful young woman and after that it just kind of uh, those those type of requests came in more frequently and I don't know it was uh, it was uh, interesting journey every every family was different every patient was different every family dynamic was different there was uh, one family who uh was just i mean god bless them though but they were bloody awful they all were black all the time that they came to visit their loved one in the hospital and basically uh always burst into tears in front of the patient and the histrionics and so dramatic and would fall all over the said and uh, wailing and uh, you know the patient really just would kind of uh, make eye contact with us uh, volunteers and kind of roll her eyes and we would try not to all share a laugh but we would share a laugh when the wailing family left because it was just like are you kidding me and and that kind of uh, humor was a, a great comfort you know uh, to everyone because it you know, even though it's awkward, I always say, because, you know, really, it's some of the things that uh, that the patient might experience are a bit um, a bit insane, really. And uh, often, the, uh, as uh, as the the people who are grieving 
Well, they need to be consoled uh, by the dying patient. And that's, mm. you know, kind of ridiculous, but it, it does happen. And of course, you know, that, uh, that individual still loves their family and, and does want to console them. So it just it was a great learning curve and, and it's always interesting. And I imagine that uh, nurses that do uh, enter into palliative care from other areas of nursing, they, they come into that field because they love it and because they they feel that that's where they are best placed and that's how I feel about volunteering too. Mm-hmm. Well, that's amazing. It's amazing you're able to do that and, and sort of learn some stuff too about like what the dying go through that you don't normally would see or notice. And it's funny how you're saying about some people the dying needs to comfort the uh, the grieving and you're like wait a second <laughs> you know like I'm dying like why am why why is it my responsibility to help you live <laughs> so so it's really interesting that you sort of got that and I never sort of um, sat with anyone dying yet I've always been talking with uh, the bereaved themselves and they've never mentioned anything like that so it's 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 interesting and I'm glad you're a part of that um, you'd probably be really good at even we had someone on a music therapist. And she will, she would talk to the the dying and then play music for them. And, you know, who knows, like, but one day maybe that, that's your road too, is, you know, helping, using music to help people die better or just feel calm as they move forward. Oh, I hope so. And um, one thing I find that uh, I sometimes get asked, people like uh, to have someone to, to pray with them, even if they are not particularly religious. And what, I think it really means is that they want uh, to do what I call just a, uh, a a positivity meditation. You know, prayer really is meditation, and it does cross all theological boundaries in a way. It really connects everyone once they're faced with kind of having to reflect. Being forced to reflect on your life is a profound task. And uh, but it's very necessary for people, and I'm sure that must include uh, people who are going through basically the spectrum of of grief and that journey, which you know can be can be long, very very long, and 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 difficult. And you know, meditating or you know, also known as prayer, um, really, I think is. Uh, some of the uh, some of the most healing and amazing techniques that the mind and heart can uh, can do together. It's it's really it's really something. And I think for uh, for dying uh, patients that do ask me, they don't ask me to sing songs, which mm. I always say, well, I wouldn't ask me either. Who wants to <laughs> you know, who wants to hear that in, the, in their in their hours? Um, but uh, but I do like sitting sitting and meditating with people and I can mm. as you are discovering I can talk all day so yeah. <laughs> I have no problem doing it yeah and, and it's it must be a real special moment when that's happening uh, I know just from my own experience you know sitting with my grandmother she was in a coma so she uh, she couldn't speak but you know the presence was there she was there and just talking to her saying words we read through the bible a little bit and just it was uh definitely enriching for me and my cousins involved and, and family but also you know you felt like you were with them and i'm sure she was listening and there's there is that reflection moment in there you know that person is there with you as well and uh, it's interesting what you said before as well that it's uh you need those moments like when when if you're laughing if you're telling a joke you know, if you're watching another patient or a nurse do something funny, you almost need those moments too for that respite, uh, that break uh, to break up. You know, if 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 it is too heavy at a moment, or because it is obviously we're you know dealing with some heavy heavy stuff. But at the end of the day, it is a journey, and to have those moments kind of in between there, I think that just kind of fuels you even more, and and keeps you in that moment. Absolutely, and I, uh, you know, it. Uh, every every situation is different, and every, you know, the needs change uh, emotionally, you know, hour by hour for people. And and I think that being, you know, just 
kind of being open uh, to to going in whatever direction a person needs uh, as far as conversation or just being a good listener or, or just sitting quietly or, you know, or, or pulling out the top hat and cane and doing, you know, doing the, the funnies. I mean, you know, it, it really, uh, whatever we can do to, to help each other and to help one another uh, get through bumpy times. I think that that is uh, just a wonderful way to connect human beings. Mm-hmm. And it that's, it shows our humanity and our, you know, our hearts. Hearts are amazing and people never cease to amaze me with their resiliency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's, it's amazing what people can go through and what they can achieve themselves, but also with even just a little support from someone else. You know, just like that one person can give them that boost to, you know, move a mountain, you know, like it's just, it's amazing to see that and the, and the hope and faith that people have in their, in themselves and they're willing to change sometimes. And for me, I love grief in the sense of even for the bereaved because people are so honest and open. And that's like, those are the conversations I love the most. Like they're willing to talk about anything because basically everything was destroyed. So they're willing to talk about everything. And I'm guessing the dying would probably be something similar is that, okay, you know, life's ending. I don't need to put up a shirt, you know, the charade anymore. I can be honest about like my thoughts and my feelings and, you know, and almost be true, like to feel almost loved in my true form rather than this sort of concoction I've made. And do you see that with the dying, how they're just really open and honest? Well, I think it really depends too. I mean, you know, when my father was at the end of his life, um, he still it was the same person that he always was, which is very funny and always, uh, you know, making uh, making lots of jokes and and everything. And um, he was like that until the very end. And I think that one thing for sure is. People are who they are. There's a saying that your character is your destiny. And I think that's so true. You can really see a trajectory of a person's life. And ultimately, the way they feel about things uh, and the way they experience things and the way they behave and act towards others really is consistent. And then at the end of life, Many people do have an awakening, or like you say, there's an uh, there there's a bit of an ease. You know, you're kind of off the hook now in many ways. But there are also a lot of people who are very fearful, who do not, who absolutely will not accept it, do not want to leave, and uh, and that's very very tragic. And all we can do. As, as fellow human beings, uh, to be supportive and be good listeners, is to just really try and be uplifting uh, to that individual because, you know, we can't, often we can't really help them through that fear other than just a reassurance, you know, that, that everything will be fine or that their their loved ones will be okay and that, that you know, their, their, you know, people they left behind will be able to, carry on eventually and you know that kind of reassurance is uh, just so imperative and I, I think that that's for the living as well as the dying yeah no, that's well said it's well said and so did you so is your father still alive now no uh, he passed away about five months ago and um, <laughs> yeah and so you're uh, a lot of your work, of course, is uh, talking about dreams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I went and uh, after my uh, 17-year-old dog died, or as I say, croaked. After he croaked, he bit me and growled at me till the day, till his last breath, he was biting me. And he made me laugh every day. The, the love of my life was this little fluffy white dog. When he finally passed away, suddenly... I was able to go and stay with my dad for a month, which I had never been able to do because, of course, I was responsible for uh, not only my career and my tour schedule, but also this little these little pets that I, I didn't want to leave at home. So I finally went and stayed with my dad and his wife, who was a nurse, 
uh, for a month. And that month that I stayed with him, uh, we had a ball. His uh, his first choir, he couldn't get out of bed anymore. And he was, uh, he had cancer that had uh, spread and had taken over his body, basically. But not yet his sense of humor in his brain, of course. Uh, and his first choir would come once a week and sing to him in his bedroom. I mean, 20 people would crowd in there. Well, we all stood on, I would have to stand on a chair uh, behind them all to be able to see my father into the crowd. And he would laugh and make jokes. And uh, it was such a special time that after I had left and he was in a stage where he didn't want anyone coming to see him anymore. And so I would talk to him on the phone. And uh, and he just really, he just really wished that death would come for him more than anything else. And uh, and he was uh, well. He was uh, he was good humored about it. But when he passed away, it was long expected. And it was long overdue. And there's a sense of relief uh, that the family does have. And I know that anyone who goes through a death, especially if it was long, there is a sense of relief. And then, uh, of course, there's guilt that comes with that feeling. For any uh, family, I'm sure will tell you that as well. But I saw my father uh, after he passed away when I was on the subway in Paris, France. Um, totally unexpected. I wasn't thinking about him. I was busy uh, trying to map out my, my route. I had to leave for London the next day, and uh, we were very busy. And uh, I had been living in Paris for a little while. And I was on this crowded subway uh, in rush hour and uh, sitting in a chair, uh, one of the seats, I uh, looked in the crowded, in the crowd, in the crowd, and there was my father staring at me, literally sitting across from me, in the only empty seat on the subway, and he was wearing his old fishing hat that he always was disgusting, it was covered in fish scales, uh, with a master angler's like, rusted pin on it, and uh, no socks, and um, but his his sandals that he wore that embarrassed his three daughters and uh, and a coffee cup that he was holding and he was just smiling at me. There wasn't anything he was saying and I literally rubbed my eyes uh, and tried to look away and look back. There he was. And I thought, I'm hallucinating. Like, honestly, I am losing it. I'm hallucinating. This is, you know, because I was very busy. It was crowded. It was the daytime. <laughs> You know, but I always felt so happy and I smiled all day long, really just my heart soared because I thought I saw him today and, uh, and it never happened again, ever. And, but it was so clear to me and it, it gave me such a, a sense of peace and happiness. And, you know, it was just pure and simple. And if I imagined it, well... I have to commend my imagination because, you know, I, I can do songwriting my entire life and still, you know, uh, not be able to imagine anything as vividly as that uh, was for me. And uh, my husband and I met because my guitar player um, was his best friend. And uh, my guitar player passed away quite suddenly. Um five years ago and my husband of course became my guitar player after that um but my husband had dreams about uh, my guitar player jd uh and jd would come and, and talk to him in the middle of the night and, and kind of reassure him in a way and or they would talk about believe it or not kiss the band which was a shared <laughs> a shared interest of theirs so, you know, I do know that, uh, that that brought incredible comfort, uh, to him. Uh, so I, I really think that, uh, that the, it, it's limitless, you know, what, for example, what can, what can happen in, in our lifetimes and the things that we can experience and feel and see. I really think it's limitless. And I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, the more you explore it, of course, in your work, I'm, I'm sure that you uh, will hear thousands of stories that uh, are equally interesting and uplifting.
Yeah, that's the the beauty of the work I get to do. But the sad part is, you know, a lot of people hide these experiences. So as much as they are comforting, they don't really share it with other people because they don't want, you know, like they don't want to get judged or they want to seem crazy, all those, you know, things. But like at the end of the day, these are experiences that are going on for the majority of the population. And yet we're pretending it's not there. So that's why I was glad to do the academic research to say, hey, look, guys, you know, this is something. And people need academic research to think something is real. So <laughs> it's of just course. nice. Right. This is the culture we live in. So it's nice I was able to do that and sort of make a mark on, on that world to say, hey, this is okay. And so people are taking more yeah. seriously now. And so I was really sad to hear about your father, your, your guitarist, your, your dogs. It just seems like, <laughs> you know, there's a lot, a lot of loss for you to go through and also your husband to go through. But I'm glad, you know, he's had his own experiences to reassure him um, and to provide him comfort through that journey. And so for you, have you ever had a dream of, of anyone who's deceased or is it just your husband? Oh, just him. I have never, I've had dreams about people uh, who I've never met come visit me, but they were, they were like not dead. Um, <laughs> but I, I always thought that it would be wonderful. And, and I think that it is special. I think that I, I do believe wholeheartedly that I was, uh, was had a visit from my dad and, mm. and I'm happy. You know, I can go the rest of my life not ever experiencing that again and still feel that gladness, that gladness in my heart that, that I did have that experience. And I know the same is true for my husband. And, you know, he is uh, very, I mean, JD visited him probably two days after he passed away. And, uh, and I think that's profound. And I think that, you know, uh, regardless of whether or not anyone else believes that that experience was real or if it was a figment of his dreaming or anything, I know for sure it affected him profoundly and brought a lot of understanding and hope to him. And so I was always very grateful for that as well. And with loss, I mean, you know, loss is such a huge part of, of a human being's experience in life. Uh, it's funny, earlier you were mentioning Ram Das, uh, whom I loved and <laughs> followed his work. And of course, uh, Krishna Das, I followed him since I was uh, a young uh, uh, Hare Krishna punk in the 80s. But that's a, another another t day's conversation. But with Ram Das, there was a quote that I always really very moved by, which is, death is like taking off a tight shoe. And I always felt, yeah, you know what? I think that probably hits the nail on the head, really, uh, when you consider it. And uh, and I've always kind of viewed it that way. Ever since, you know, ever since I read that, and I was probably in my early 20s uh, when I first started reading some of his writing and studying him, I really think that's true. And so I don't feel a deep sense of loss or longing when it comes to the the people in my life that I love uh, that have passed away. You know, I always think that it is the time that they were meant to go. And, you know, as sad as I am, I know that, you know, death for me in my, I guess, beliefs in my life, it's a transcendence uh, more than anything else. And I, I just always have, uh, have felt almost neutral about it, uh, even if I was grieving or, or sad or mourning. But I just think that uh, uh, I don't I don't carry it as a loss. I carry it as a smile, you know, to always remember and love that person. That's beautiful. I'm I'm happy that you have that deep sense of belief and faith in, you know, the process of what death is doing, right? It's just, you know, changing a shoe, <laughs> you know. And uh, I think that's I think that's so cool and and it's amazing too because with that perspective, like I have a similar perspective and when when they do die, like my father died and I now see him completely different than I did when he was my father. It was like I was able to 
like almost he was able to let go of that father role or that like being stuck in that a tormented body at a, i would say and now it's just more mm-hmm. of a it's a, a love and peace like my dreams of him he's in a he's always in this like funny he doesn't have like this fear that he always had he was just like it, he was basically like a body of love in a form of my father and i think that's sort of what you saw with your dad it's like you you see this being and that's why it's so vivid and real and it's just it's different because there's something different you know as much as they look the same there's something right. different about their heart and like what they're what kind of almost like vibrations are they're showing off in front of you and so, you know, like that, that's cool. And I'm happy you have that because that makes life so much easier. <laughs> like, I don't know where I would be if I had a different belief personally. Oh, absolutely. And I think, but how you're describing your, uh, your dad, I think is, uh, incredible. And I think that you, that's absolutely correct. When you say the embodiment of love, I think that, you know, even though they do look the same, the things that have washed away are those things like fear or inadequacies or any of the trappings that life, you know, throws upon us. And I think that that's a really possibly must be quite universal in a way. Uh, you know, every society, you know, we, we go through life feeling all the expectations and uh, feeling, you know, like we've and all, all our, we carry with us all our, our disappointments and all our feelings of uh, having let down people or, or dreams not realized or, or whatever it is. And they really are like robes that we can throw off, you know, at the end of our life and, and really, yes, come to a place of, uh, of peace and, and embodying love. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It had me uh, thinking about what you said, you know, in terms of like the human kind of uh, the, the nuances of being a human is having those fear exist anxieties. And I think sometimes like for myself, uh, I have a dog as well. He's, he's three years old and uh, ah. I have yeah, <laughs> he's a little pup. Uh, I sometimes well, in the past, I, I had a lot of anticipatory fear of his death. Like, you know, you know, they live shorter lives than you. So, you know, I was just like, I love him so much, you know, and, and when, when he dies, like, oh, my God, how am I going to feel? And then you start to fear that feeling. And I, I, I started just actually thinking about his death and just getting comfortable with all that. And, and it, it did a weird thing where it actually just started making me calm down and relax more and and, uh, you know obviously I just tell myself you know don't it's okay you know as a dog parent you have these fears you have these stresses oh what if he gets hit by a car what if this happens what if that happens but it's hard that's a tough way to live and it it would probably be even tougher if I didn't acknowledge that and then he passed away and I could see that being a tough experience but I think I'm, I'm doing myself a service by just having that in my head as well, that, hey, there's life, there's beauty in that, but then there's death. And and not there's no, again, not to put a black and white on and not to put a negative or positive spin on it, but it is what it is, you know. And again, just, you know, the mystery of life, sometimes just chilling and, and sitting in that, that's important, but acknowledge all of it and, and also how it affects us. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, what you're describing is, future surfing and we all do it we all future surf uh the what ifing i call it mm. uh, in good ways and bad ways and it holds people back you know it's uh, i think when i was in uh university i think it was called fear of success um but what it really is is future surfing and people don't do things because just in case the worst happens mm. and um i also learned a lot about the anticipatory anxiety when I had my dogs. I mean, you know, I, I never had human children. So, you know, these little dogs that I had, I mean, I, I used to tell jokes on stage that I breastfed them. I mean, obviously I couldn't mm. breastfeed my beast on, <laughs> but I felt like I did. I carried them like babies and they slept with me and, you know, I, I took care of them when they were sick and, you know, all these, all these things uh, that come with that kind of nurturing instinct that we have. And, and, you know, when we love someone so much, it hurts. 
we get tears in our eyes just thinking how much we love them. And I mean, that goes even now with my, with my mom who lives in Winnipeg or my sister or even my husband. And, you know, I do, because it's natural, I think that we all do come to the, those uh, daydreams or those fantasies where what if something happens, what if they don't come back? you know, from going to the store. What if a car hits them in this terrible snow? It's, it's, I think it's normal for our brains to go to that place so that we can also resolve it mm. and, and develop that kind of instinctive coping technique, which is an emotional technique. It's self-protective to be able to envision the worst and to envision the solution or what we will do or who we're going to call. I mean, we can even fantasize to go through those steps. And uh, again, I'm not a psychologist uh, or a proctologist, as, as we've established. <laughs> but uh, I'm not a psychologist, but I will bet that it is absolutely human nature to do that type of future surfing, envisioning the worst and envisioning the resolution so that we can have that coping skill. It's self-protective. And uh, hopefully, hopefully your pup lives to the most ripe old age possible. Um, and again, no matter how logical we are, and that goes with, you know, our aging parents or whether or not our parents have a terminal disease or whatever, we can logically, clinically look at it, assess it, make peace with it, understand it, say, well, this is, what is expected and well, they were 85 or well, it doesn't matter because grief will still choke us. It will still uh, absolutely blindside us. It still shocks us. It still uh, keeps us in bed, unable to move. It paralyzes us. Uh, and it's still something that we ha always have to work on. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I totally agree with that. And uh, well, what what has helped me uh, definitely uh, as well is uh, living in the moment, you know, appreciating those times that he is here on this earth with me, you know, every day we get to play, we get to, you know, go for walks and, and the whole gamut of having a, a dog. And so what were your dog's names? Uh, my, my Maltese was Nicholas. He had his own Twitter page. <laughs> That was Nick Naked. <laughs> oh, sick. one word, like and you can go through the whole feed. And uh, I mean, this is before Instagram. You know, he he died uh, before Instagram really took off. So I'm sure he would have had his own Instagram page had he lived. But uh, I had a Bichon as well. I got about a year later. So Nicholas was born in 1996. And uh, Anastasia was uh, was born in '97, uh, and uh, she was a Bichon. So fluffy white little dogs that I cooked for them. I never fed them dogs, so I cooked for them every day. They ate rice and uh, mostly spinach. Anastasia got uh, she got more red peppers than Nicholas did because they peppers would make him poopy, but she needed them or she'd be constipated. It's just mm. a, mother, a mother knows, a mother knows. Mm, of course. Um, but they were, yeah, they were, uh, they were joy. They were, they were absolute joy. Joy. Joy every day. I know what it's like. I, I honestly, I had a, a different perspective before I got my dog. Um, you know, I never had a dog before and then I got my guy three years ago and uh, it just opened up my world. I was like, wow, these beings are smart they're they're amazing they have personalities they have emotions it, it's just incredible it's incredible and, and no wonder you know i think they bring more to your life than you bring to theirs and i think that it's just uh it's brought a lot of blessing into my own life and uh, i definitely honor the memory of your um two beautiful dogs nicholas and anastasia uh, wherever you. they are yeah yeah thank you yeah they were i still laugh my head off Maybe like uh, like anyone who who goes through a loss after Nicholas died, even though it was expected and and uh, and long, uh, his death was very long. I would become very angry if I saw anyone reprimanding their dog. Yeah. You know, for the first year after my dog died, I would become very 
upset if I was in my car and could see someone on the sidewalk pulling their uncooperative dog. Mm, It would be all I could do not to roll my window down and yell out expletives out the window, you're abusing your dog. I mean, I was very sensitive afterwards and really it took a long time for that to go away. And and I think that that's uh that's a real testament to like you say, living every day uh in gratitude for the days that you do have with your with your family, your loved one, your parent, your child, your pet, you know, just uh just really being grateful for every day that we do have, which is a gift. Wow, I love it. I'm loving this episode. Too bad we don't have like three hours. <laughs> ah! Ah! I'm happy to talk again. <laughs> well, we know you love to talk, <laughs> and it's great. And you, you said that you have, and you have like such such amazing stories and such amazing perspective that it's just fun to talk to you. Like time flies, and I think that's maybe why people love you in the room when they're dying or when they're going through struggles. Is like time flies when they're listening to you. For whatever reason, you know, you can't really pinpoint it, but there's just something about it that allows things to just flow. Like life flows easy when you're in the room. And so, you know, who knows how you, who you got, how you got that. But uh, at the end of the day, it's a beautiful thing. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> bless your so we, heart. Oh, I love, I love this show and I just am uh, really happy to, to have been a guest. Well, thanks. So we have one last question that we'd like to ask our guests before they leave. And that is, if you could have one dream tonight of someone who has passed, or it could be all of them, um, what would that dream look like to you? Well, honestly, you know, I think that in the the years since my dad has passed away, there have been certain milestones in my life that I wish I could talk to him about. Uh, My father was, uh, you know, he was a dental professor. So it was basically a public health, his master's is in public health. So I wish I could talk to him about some of the, uh, the issues that I have with, say, for example, you know, trying to, trying to access uh, mammography, for example, in remote communities in Northern Ontario. I mean, it's, my husband doesn't want to talk about that. <laughs> he wants to talk about kids, you know, <laughs> or, or, or concerts. And, uh, and I do, I do wish that I could have conversations with my father that um, some could only have with him. So I think that if I could dream anything, it would be to be able to to sit and talk with him about some of the things that uh, that I, you know, just want to have discussions about. He was uh, a great conversationalist, and he was a very thoughtful, uh, a thoughtful person, and a social justice advocate uh so in many ways he was uh, my mentor wow uh, he seems like such an amazing guy and what an amazing father to have on your journey so what would you want him to be wearing do you want him to have the the sandals and the fish hat or do you want something different oh he always dressed the same i have <laughs> a uh, i have a photo of him and i uh when i went to stay with him when he was still in uh he was still upright. He came to the airport, and he's wearing his Saskatchewan Rough Riders T-shirt <laughs> and a baseball hat, and it's just like, <laughs> and it was tucked into his pants with his belt. And, and you know, it's just so funny to me. My dad was so funny. I think that whatever he wears it would be just perfectly him. Okay, so something like that, nothing like a, a shiny white robe or anything like that. <laughs> oh gosh, no. Yeah, okay. no. He was uh, my my dad liked to wear things uh, that were his favorite sweatshirt uh, was from Pocketwagon, and it was uh, it said University of Pocketwagon on it, and then the big letters across the chest said Pock U. <laughs> and uh, he thought it was the funniest shirt. It was like oh, it was threadbare. He wore it so much. Dad jokes. Uh, but it was his favorite shirt. That's right. And so the last question I have about this dream that uh, you won't have: Where would you want it to be? So what location? Uh, in my current apartment. 
so that he could see uh, my new home <laughs> right here. I like it. You know, uh, I'm just seeing a vision. Maybe a day like today, a snowy day outside. You guys are inside having a cup of coffee. You know, he's well. He's already got his cup. You know, and he's just you just you're filling it up. <laughs> yep, that's for sure. He likes his coffee just black. I like it. Seems like you know, uh, obviously, uh, uh, a man who really had a mission on Earth and and did the best that he could to kind of give back to society. And that's the vibe I get with you as well, Biff. You know, it was a real pleasure speaking with you. Um, you have a definite uh, humbleness and a groundedness that you wouldn't expect necessarily from a celebrity uh, who's who's kind of living in the celebrity world as well as other worlds. But that just shows also is how you take on these identities you don't throw them away and you embrace them and make them your own which is which is a, an amazing uh, attribute as well to have and as well you have uh, you know the graciousness and, and gratitude in your life that you're living uh, each and every day and you can really tell from your conversations and uh, you know you've obviously been through some challenges that you kind of embraced and brought forward and, and it seemed to have made you better so uh, it's just incredible speaking with you um, is there any uh, Anywhere where people can reach you and message you? Oh, well, well, thank you for saying so many nice things about me. Um, I always say I'm only famous in my kitchen. Uh, <laughs> trying to cook Vindaloo, and that's a whole other story. But um, people can always find me on Twitter, uh, at Biff Naked. And, of course, I'm on Instagram, and it's easy to... To quickly go through photos and, and get the gist, I always say, which is why Instagram is so popular. And of course, Facebook as well. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so people can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We uh, added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. Um, if you have a Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams podcast group. You can share your dreams or hear more about dreams of others. We're on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Grief Dreams. And the children's book called Dreaming of Owl, authored by Joshua, can be found on Amazon. There are tips on how to talk to children about their dreams at the end. So, as always, we like to end our podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.